Now, in our outline of Exodus, we began this series in the first section of the book, which talked about God delivering his people. And we saw God deliver the Jews from slavery and bondage in Egypt under the tyrannical rule of Pharaoh. Now that God has delivered his people, though, we're in the next major section of the book of Exodus, which is now God directing his people. God is giving guidance to his people and giving them direction through his law. And so we're going to understand a little bit more fully this morning the nature of God's law. I want to say this at the outset, that this is a very difficult topic. It's a very uh, contested topic of how we interpret the Old Testament law. In fact, Thomas Schreiner, who's a New Testament scholar, says this, and I quote, the role of the Old Testament law in the New Testament is one of the most complicated and controversial issues in New Testament theology, end quote. So in light of that, we can either throw in the towel skip the section and move on, or we can do what we're going to do today, which is let's take a stab at it and see what we can understand in God's word. I don't claim to have this all figured out, the relationship between the Old Testament law and Christians today, but there are some really helpful categories that I want to introduce for us that are going to help us to make sense of what we read in the Old Testament. Now, the most foundational thing that we can say about our relationship as Christians today to the Old Testament law is this, that you and I have moved from living our lives under Moses to under Christ. What I mean by that is before the time of Christ, God's people were living underneath the law of Moses. But because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection— And because of the fact that we live on this side of the cross, you and I are no longer underneath the law of Moses. Instead, the Bible teaches, you and I are underneath the law of Christ. This is the most foundational thing we can say as Christians about the law. You are not under Moses. If you're a Christian this morning, you are under Christ. Galatians 3, 24 through 26 puts it this way. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So Paul there says, look, the law was a guardian, but its usefulness, its time as a guardian has expired because Christ has come. Now, my wife and I have what's called a living trust. A living trust is sort of like a will, but it's a little bit more extensive, and it just details what's going to happen to your assets or your children in the event that you should die. And for us, if both of us were to die, our money and our assets would go to our children. That's the way we've structured our trust, that our kids are going to get the things that we have. But here's the kicker. If we die before our children come of age, we've appointed a guardian or a trustee, somebody who we're hoping and praying is responsible, and we'll be able to steward our resources well until the time that our kids come of age. And the reason for that is obvious. If we left Judah in charge of his money at seven years old, he would spend all of his money on sunflower seeds and on baseball stuff and Nintendo Switch stuff. 
If we gave Jace his money at five years old, he'd spend it all on action figures and toy animals. And if Silas at six months old had his money to spend, he would spend it all on milk and more milk. And so it's not wise for adults to leave resources in the hands of young children. So the guardian in our living trust is going to handle those finances until my boys come of age. And at that point, the guardian is disconnected from the trust and our children are in charge of their own inheritances. And so the guardian at that point is no longer necessary. This is the way that Paul sees the law. He's saying, look, the law served a purpose. It was like a guardian. It was sort of like a tutor that was helping to manage and guide and direct God's people until God himself came in the person of Christ. And now that he's done that, there's no more need for a guardian. God's people have come, to, come of age, so to speak, through faith in Christ. Because of this, you and I are no longer under the law. You and I as Christians are under Christ, what Paul calls in Galatians 6.2 and also 1 Corinthians 9.21, the law of Christ. So look at the connection there. He's like, you're not under the law of Moses anymore. Now we are under the law of Christ. In Jesus Christ, the entire Mosaic law, every dot and tittle, if you will, of the Old Testament law has been perfectly fulfilled on our behalf. Therefore, it's not binding on us. So what is the law of Christ that we are underneath? Well, oftentimes the law of Christ is called the law of love. The law of love. And it's summed up by the command to love one another. You remember when the lawyer came to Jesus and he tried to trap Jesus. And he asked our Lord, he said, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus responded and he said, that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Jesus said, a second one is like it, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus summed up the entire law in two great commands, love God and love people. And Jesus said, look, if, if you're doing that, loving God, loving people, you are fulfilling the intention and the heart of the law. In fact, in John 13, 35, Jesus says that the distinguishing mark or characteristic of the Christian community would be love. He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So all that's to say this, the law of Christ that you and I are under is nothing more and nothing less than the law of love. Those two things are synonyms. And this is what we're under. This is what God's obligation is that he's placing on us, is that you and I live under the law of love. Well, with that foundation, let's look more closely now at the Old Testament law. There's generally speaking three types of Old Testament law. So when you're thumbing through the book of Exodus or Leviticus or other pages of Old Testament scripture, you're going to come across three different broad categories of law. I've created a chart that will help us this morning. The three different types of law that we see in the Old Testament is first what we can call God's moral law. Next is civil law. And then finally is ceremonial law. So three types of law. Again, moral, civil, and ceremonial. Now, moral law 
is law that is timeless, meaning that God's moral law is always going to be in in effect. God's moral law does not have an expiration date. God's moral law is dealing with, as we see here, ethical guidelines. In other words, the right way to live life, the wrong way to live life. And these are timeless, eternal principles that God has given to us. Again, this is God's moral law. It applies to all people in all, all ages. We also see civil law, which was temporary, meaning that it does have a shelf life. And the reason for that is because the civil laws in the Old Testament related to, their purpose was Old Testament government. And then finally, we see ceremonial law in the Old Testament, which was also temporary because it related to Old Testament worship. Let's unpack these a little bit for us this morning and see how this relates to us as Christians. Let's begin with the moral law. As I mentioned, the moral law is timeless. There's no shelf life here. God's moral law are ethical guidelines. These are commands that God has given to humanity to help us to live life rightly. These are God's laws for all people in every place at all time. A perfect example of this is the Ten Commandments, which we studied the last two weeks in Exodus 20. It is always wrong to worship other gods. Doesn't matter where you live. Doesn't matter if you were born in the 1300s or 2019. Worshiping other gods is always wrong. It is always wrong to steal from somebody. It is always wrong to murder somebody. It is always wrong to lie to people. It's always wrong to commit adultery. These are things that are timeless moral commands that God has given to us. Now, you might be thinking, wait, pastor, I I thought you just said that as Christians, we're not under the law of Moses. Isn't this stuff that Moses gave to us? Yes, but the reason, this is so important, the reason why the moral law of God is still applicable to us today is because the moral law is, in essence, the law of love. What I mean by that is this. Adultery, stealing, murder, those sorts of things are forbidden because they are the unloving things to do. You cannot say, I am loving my neighbor when you strike your neighbor down and kill them. These are a violation or a contradiction of the law of love and therefore they are still binding on this, on us. This is the connection we see in Romans 13 verses 8 through 10. Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love each other. So we're talking about love. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, now he's quoting Old Testament law, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. See, Paul's able to say that loving your neighbor is not just having good feelings about them. Loving your neighbor is actually acting and behaving in ways that are loving toward them by not murdering them, by not stealing from them, by not committing adultery. That's what it looks like to actually love another person. So God's moral law actually stays consistent with this law of love. We see in the New Testament that 
The moral law of the Old Testament is affirmed constantly. Let's think about the Ten Commandments. The fifth commandment is to honor your parents. Guess what? This comes back around in the New Testament for us. Ephesians 6, 1 and 2. Paul writes, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Then he quotes the Old Testament. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Adultery, the seventh commandment, comes back around in many places. Here's 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, there's the connection, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So adultery being repeated here in the New Testament. What about murder? The sixth commandment. In 1 John 3, 11 and 12, we read this. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. What about stealing? Here's Ephesians 4, 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Lying, we see repeated, Colossians 3, 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Even coveting the 10th commandment, repeated in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. So we see the the moral law of God in the Old Testament being reaffirmed in the New Testament, being binding on us. And again, the reason is because these laws are actually what it looks like to be loving toward our neighbor. And we should know that it's God's moral law that every human being has offended. And it's God's moral law That is the reason why we stand condemned before God because of our sin. It's because none of us have loved God properly. It's because none of us have loved our neighbor properly. And our sin is what brings God's judgment. And this is why, as Christians, we are so thankful that Jesus perfectly fulfilled the moral law of God on our behalf. Because without Christ, we all stand condemned. But in Christ, by faith in him, we actually stand righteous, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, with our sins paid for through his death. Praise be to Jesus that he makes us righteous and that the Holy Spirit actually empowers us to live righteously. God's moral law should always leave us convicted, grateful, committed, and reliant. Convicted of our sin, Grateful for God's grace in Christ. Committed to obeying it because it's true and good and loving. And lastly, reliant on the Holy Spirit's help to actually obey. Let's move to the second category of law. The civil law that we see in the Old Testament. As I mentioned, this is temporary. This had a shelf life because it related to Old Testament government. It was laws about government. In the Old Testament, you need to understand that God was ruling a nation of people, that God was ruling the nation of Israel. And because Israel was a nation, 
God was their king. Their form of government was called a theocracy, meaning rule by God. Just like every other nation in the ancient world, just like every other nation today, the Israelites needed laws for the land, laws to help them live out in their society. And because they were ruled by God, God gave these laws to them. We see examples of God's civil law in the pages of Exodus here. Look again at chapter 21, verse 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him away from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Drop down to chapter 22, verses 5 and 6. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. Drop down to verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down for that is his only covering and it is his cloak for his body in what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear for I am compassionate. So those are samplings of different laws that were related to different circumstances. Murder, uh, destroying somebody's property, mistreating the poor, and God created laws that his people needed to abide by in an effort to govern the nation well. Now, generally, when we talk about laws today, this is the kind of law we think about. If you talk about laws or keeping the law, most people aren't thinking about moral law, and people are definitely not thinking about ceremonial law, which we'll get to in a moment. They're thinking about civil law, the laws of the land. We were driving a couple of days ago, and I heard my boys kind of talking quietly in the back seat. And then all of a sudden, the question came out, Dad, have you ever been in jail before? No. And then the response was, so you've never broken the law? And I thought for a second, I said, well, well not those kinds of laws. I had to be really careful with that. But those are the kinds of laws that we usually think about when we talk about law, is civil laws. And in American culture and in our society, we have civil laws against everything on one side of the spectrum, from first-degree murder all the way to minor infractions like a traffic violation. But all of those kinds of laws fall under the category of civil law. It's the law of the land here in America. So here's the key. Because God is no longer dealing with a specific nation of people, but rather God is dealing with a church, 
that is made up of people of all different nations and languages and ethnicities all across the globe, the civil laws of the Old Testament are not binding on us. Instead, what's interesting is the civil laws of the nation that each individual Christian is living in is what is binding on them. So we live in the United States of America. We are called, according to Romans 13, to obey our government, to obey the laws of this land. Of course, unless they violated God's moral law. But we are supposed to be honoring and obeying our government. Being a good citizen is part of what it means to be a good witness. Christians should not be unruly. Christians should not be seen as people who are fighting against the authorities. We're supposed to be people who are honoring and respecting our government and are living in a civilized way. Now we see already in the New Testament an example of the church early on setting aside the civil law of the Old Testament. So this is not something that we're just making up, you know, 2,000 years later. The example is in 1 Corinthians 5. And you're going to see here that the church was setting aside the civil law of the Old Testament. In 1 Corinthians 5, there was an issue in the church at Corinth. It was discovered that there was a man in the church who was having sexual relations with his dad's wife, so with his stepmother. So this is horrendous. And this comes to the attention of the Apostle Paul. And so the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 is writing to the church and telling them how they are supposed to deal with the sin in the midst of the church. And what Paul tells the church to do is drive this person out from among you. In other words, kick him out of the fellowship of the church so that hopefully he's going to come to his senses and repent and get right with the Lord again. But I want you to notice that this is different than what the Old Testament civil law said somebody was supposed to, or what people were supposed to receive as a penalty if they were living in sexual sin. Here's Deuteronomy 22.22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. So again, under the governmental laws of the Old Testament, if somebody committed adultery, the legal punishment for that was, was execution. But Paul in the New Testament discovers the same sin in the church and his counsel to the church is not execution, but excommunication. So he's setting aside the civil law of the Old Testament and that's no longer binding on the church and now he's calling for, again, excommunication of this sinful person in the church. And so we see again, because God is no longer dealing with a nation, but he's dealing with the church, that the civil law of the Old Testament is no longer binding on us. Let's look quickly at the third category, ceremonial law. Again, ceremonial law, we see all over the Old Testament. These are laws about worship of God in the Old Testament. And these laws are temporary and they're no longer binding. In the Old Testament, God gave his people ceremonial laws, listen, for two reasons, primarily. The first reason was to set his people apart and make them distinct from all of their pagan neighbors. So there were laws like circumcision, for example, like Sabbath observance, that were setting the Jewish people apart from all of the other nations so that they were a distinct people 
and that they look different than their neighbors. The other reason for the ceremonial law was to make God's people holy in order that they could worship him, the one true God. People in the Old Testament were sinful just like people are today. And in order for sinful people to come before God, there were elaborate processes of purification, rituals that they had to go through, slaughtering animals and doing other things in order to deal with their sins so that they could come before a holy God. We see many examples of ceremonial law in the Old Testament. Look at chapter 23, starting in verse 14. Three times a year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall, shall all your males appear before the Lord your God. Verse 18, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. Verse 19, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. These are examples of ceremonial law in the Old Testament, laws about how they were to worship God. We see laws about holy days that they were supposed to keep, about feasts that they were supposed to observe, about ceremonial cleansing in the Old Testament, laws about the sacrificial system in general. But here's the key. Because you and I are in Christ, we are already set apart and we are already made holy so that you and I have access to a holy God and we can worship him. So the ceremonial laws are no longer binding on us. This is why we see again in the New Testament examples of the Old Testament ceremonial law not being necessary anymore. In Galatians 5, 6, we read about circumcision. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. What about food laws? We see that they're done away with. Here's Mark 7. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. What about observing special days or Sabbaths or special festivals? Here's Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Finally, we see that the whole sacrificial system is done away with because of Jesus. Here's Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? He says, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. He continues in verse 12. But when Christ had offered 
for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What's the author saying there? He's saying, look, all of these ceremonial laws, these laws about worship in the Old Testament were like a shadow. But the real thing that casts the shadow, the actual substance, the reality that matters is Christ. All of these things just pointed forward to Jesus. But now that Christ has come, these ceremonial laws are no longer in effect. You and I don't have to take animals that we've raised, that we've kept in perfect condition, and slaughter them on a regular basis and apply the blood so that we can have our sin dealt with. You and I don't have to strictly observe certain dietary customs so we can be set apart from the world. No, no, no. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit who is transforming us into the likeness of Christ who sets us apart from the world. Look at it this way. Christ is the new tabernacle where we go to meet with God. Christ is the ultimate sacrificial lamb who takes away our sin. Christ is our sanctification so that in him we are set apart for God. And Christ is the holiness of God so that in him we are holy and we can be in God's presence. Church, you and I live in an era of salvation history that the recipients of Exodus literally dreamed about. You and I are living in the time that they were looking forward to going, oh my gosh, there's going to come a day that is going to be so amazing where all of these things are going to be done away with. This, this is a time that they literally would have dreamt about. In fact, you and I are living in an era of salvation history that according to 1 Peter 1.12, the angels are looking into with eagerness. They're baffled by the relationship that you and I are able to have with God in Christ. The Jews of the Old Covenant lived under the strict and weighty law of Moses with, listen to me, hundreds and hundreds of individual commands. What a burden. Every day, am I violating the law? Can I do this? Can we not do that? You and I are living under the law of Christ whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. You and I are living at a time where we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey the law of God from the heart. You and I are living under the new covenant where worshipers of God don't have to go to Samaria. We don't have to travel to Jerusalem. We worship God in spirit and in truth right where we are. You and I are living in the time that they dreamed of because you and I are living on this side of the resurrection of Christ which is an ironclad guarantee that everything Jesus said and did is true and that you and I will also experience resurrection. Church, we've got it pretty darn good, don't we? We've got it pretty darn good. And so when we're looking at the law of the Old Testament, it can be complex. It's hard sometimes. Where does this fit? What kind of laws are we dealing with here? But at the end of the day, when you're reading the law of the Old Testament, all of it should point your attention to Christ. That Jesus fulfilled the law for us. And that in him we are made righteous. And in him we are given the spirit so that we can honor and obey God. So here's the thought we're going to leave with today. The Jews of the Old Testament were passionate and dedicated and zealous 
to obeying the strenuous law of Moses, how much more then should we be passionate and dedicated and zealous and ready by the power of the Spirit to obey the law of Christ, the law of love today? That we would be a people that wake up every single morning and we think about the gospel and we say, God, you've been so good to me. Therefore, would you, by your Spirit, empower me today to love you with all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my mind, all of my strength, and in turn, to love my neighbor as myself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you that you have given your law. We know that your law is good, that your, God, that your law is righteous. And Lord, we know that as we live in light of your law, as we're thinking about the Old Testament, particularly in light of the moral law that you have given, Lord, we know that these are the very things that are going to empower us and enable us to love our neighbor in real and tangible ways. So God, we thank you for your law. We believe it's good and we want to obey it. But Lord, we also are reminded as we read your law that we don't obey it perfectly, that we all fall short. Who in this room can say that we've perfectly loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Who in this room can say that they've never lied about something or gossiped about another person, stolen something from another person? Of course, Romans 3 reminds us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's our place. And so as we think about the law, we think about Christ. We're so grateful this morning that you loved us enough that even when we were separated from you because of our sin and our inability to keep the law, that you came to us in Christ, fulfilling the law on our behalf. Dying on the cross, Jesus, so that our sins could be removed. And now by faith in you, we are holy and we are righteous and we are filled with your spirit so that we can obey the law from our hearts. Grace upon grace. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. And Father, I pray for each and every one of us this morning that you would continue to empower us by your spirit to be obedient to your word. We're living in a society that is constantly mocking and assaulting the word of God, assaulting your commands, ridiculing your law, and yet we know that these things are good. And so I pray that you would empower us to live the way that you've called us to live because we know that's what ultimately is going to be a blessing for us, a blessing for our neighbors, and that's what's ultimately going to point people back to you and give us those opportunities to share the good news of the gospel with the world around us. So help us, Holy Spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.